Welcome to the Automation Unplugged podcast, the podcast for technology professionals featuring leading industry personalities. I'm your host, Ron Callis. show features Susan Cashin, former CMO at Control4 and active CDA advisor. Susan's focus on helping companies build strong brand positions and deliver business results in crowded markets has led her to hold executive positions at Silicon Valley agencies and startups and led to her role as senior VP of marketing at Control4. During her tenure at Control4, Susan was responsible for worldwide marketing, training, and support. She was part of the executive team to take Control4 public, drive strategic acquisitions, and complete the 2019 merger with SnapAV. Today, Susan advises clients in the CI channel, the industry association, Cedia, and serves on the board of Savvy Controls, T3 Micro, and Tectonic Audio. We live streamed this interview on the One Firefly Facebook page on Wednesday, April 7th, 2021 at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. In this conversation, we discussed Susan's experience helping to launch the TiVo brand back in the 90s, how Susan moved from Silicon Valley to become one of the first employees at Control 4's energy division, branding tips Susan recommends every dealer should follow, and the importance of selling experience over technology. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do as well. Let's jump into my interview with Susan Cashin. Susan, how are you? I'm great, how are you? You know, it's uh, it's busy days over here at One Firefly, but it's it's good busy, so there's no complaining. Awesome. Where are you coming to us from? Where are you physically located right now? I am um, calling from the most beautiful area in the world, um, Lake Tahoe, California. So um, we've been spending most of the pandemic sheltering place in our home in Truckee and um, living the mountain life, um, which is pretty good. What? Tell me about the mountain life. Like, are there, I don't know that I've never been to the area. What is it like if you go outside and go for a hike? What's it look like? Um, pine trees everywhere and the Sierra mountains. So, uh, you know, my life at control four control four was based in park city, excuse me, in Salt Lake city. And, um, I used to commute from California and uh, over time just ended up getting a, a condo in Utah. And that was, I'm an East coast girl. Um, growing up, you only went to the mountains in the winter. You didn't go in the summer. Um, that was what the beach was for. And um, my my tenure at Control 4 taught me and my husband and my kids that mountain life, you know, 12 months a year is the way to go. And um, so when I left the company, um, a big life decision was, do we stay in Utah or um, kind of move closer to our home base? And we made that decision. And thank God we did, because with the pandemic, our children could, you know, it's easy for the kids to come up and visit. And um, it's been a little bit of heaven on earth. A few years ago, and maybe many listening wouldn't know this, but a few years ago, uh, my wife and I were kind of in a, a, a decision process where we were deciding whether we stayed in Florida or we were envisioning, you know, a mountain life uh, somewhere. And uh, ultimately, my son got accepted into a particular private school with, you know, fantastic academics and a well-known reputation. And so we decided that that school was the magnet that was going to keep us here. But we've decided that when he graduates, we're going we're gonna to move somewhere to the mountains. So how did you decide your current, you know, the Lake Tahoe area, if you look at all the amazing places around the country? I mean, how did you make that decision? Well, these two little creatures called grandkids came into our lives. Um, and they okay. are a three-hour drive. And um, while Salt Lake, you couldn't, it was so easy to get to Park City or to Alta, um, you know, the ski resorts from Salt Lake um, Airport, all in, it's probably two and a half hours to get to the mountains from the Bay Area. 
But getting on an airplane with all that baby gear and stuff, we kind of rolled the dice and placed a bet. I mean, this is all about luring adult children to come hang with you. Yeah, sure. um, God, we we won big. So (laughs) I I follow you on Instagram and I know that your family is a big part of your life. And uh, I, I appreciate you. Uh, allowing me to follow you on Instagram, and it looks like you have a, I'll a let beautiful family. Follow me, and as long as they just say how gorgeous my grandbabies are, that's good. Well, all right, <laughs> they're pretty amazing, stunning little babies. Thank you. Uh, we have a lot of people saying hi, and that's one of the fun of doing a live show here. So I'm just going to give a few shout outs. We have Joe Whitaker says Susan is one of those people that holds a special place mm-hmm. in my life. Love Joe. That is the checks uh, in the mail. Checks in the mail. That's worth at least 10 bucks. I don't know. That's a good one. Uh, Brandy, uh, she says, hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Greetings from Las Vegas. Hey there. Wes says, hey, Susan. Welcome to Automation Unplugged. I'm all about them. Wes lives in the mountains. He's in uh, the North Carolina. Wes, drop into the comments. What, which mountains? Where, where are you located? Uh, and then Quest, she says, mountain life is the best. Glad to have you, Susan. Thank and, you. Uh, man, lots of hellos. Adam says, welcome to the show. Tina says, excited to have you on the show. Looking forward to this conversation. And uh, Joe gave us a ha. <laughs> so Susan, uh, you have an impressive, uh, you know, dare I say, pedigreed background of experiences um, in Silicon Valley. In, at some point, you entered our industry. You clearly made a big impact. Um, can you walk us through it? You know, I think uh, from our my feedback that I get from people that listen to the show or watch the show, they love learning about the backgrounds Great. of all the people that make up this space. So what's your background? Uh, well, I am was a, a consumer marketing person um, uh, from the East Coast, actually. And I think I mentioned that. we um, I started my career back in the olden days when um, you would, in order to do any type of advertising, you had to spend a ton of money because there was nothing digital, um, right? So we did print advertising, TV advertising, radio, and billboard. And then you brought in a PR agency to get an editorial coverage. Um, the world obviously has changed substantially since then. But I started my, I had, a, like, I loved my early part of my career. I worked on such brands as Keds, um, Stride Right Shoes. I, I did a lot in the shoe business because I was in the Boston market in the 80s. Um, I was a runner. And so I got to uh, work on the New Balance account. And Bill Rogers won the marathon that year, really dating myself. Sure. Um, was but- Bill Rogers from New Balance? He was the first um, spokesperson for New Balance. Yeah. So he was. wearing okay. New Balance shoes, winning the Boston Marathon. Well, I've got to put up Wes's comment then. He says, I'm outside Raleigh, but I love running and spending time in the Appalachian <laughs> there you Mountains. Go. Wes there you is go. Uh, one of those super marathon runners. Uh, um, I've only done a few and I've shifted to cycling now. But um, anyway, um, so as an agency person, um, it was real. We moved to Silicon Valley with my husband's work. He, we called him a chip peddler. He worked in the semiconductor business, and we moved to Silicon Valley in 1994. Um, and I felt like I landed in Mars because everybody, it was all technology. Um, and I, I worked for a very prestigious communications firm um, that was acquired by Hill and Knowlton that. Um, represented the high-flying technology brands at the time. So, um, Cybe, it, lot of, uh, there was like big Russian client-server technology, Sybase and um, Borland. And um, here I come, like I, I didn't even know what technology was. But it was very fortuitous timing because suddenly in the Valley, all these startups were getting funded for this thing called the internet. Um, and even software companies were... Um, building product for like a really scary audience called the consumer. And all these technology marketing folks had no idea how to move beyond um, talking about speeds and feeds um, and really getting into the, like, how do you build a brand when you're talking to a consumer and how do you connect to a consumer? So the, the relocation gods were working in my favor. And suddenly I, when I, would talk to a product manager 
or a CTO or even a CEO. And I would say, I have no idea what you just said. Like, I'm completely confused. I didn't sound stupid. They, they were like, she's a genius. So, um, cause I, you were the consumer not understanding what the message was. Yeah. And, um, and so I just kind of applied the same practices that I, you know, applied in the East coast of, you know, how do you connect with the consumer audience? How are you, you know, how do you position a brand? So it's meaningful. How do you connect, um, not intellectually, but emotionally. And, and that's how you kind of get your name on the map. And so I worked with a number of startups, um, most of whom are, um, my favorite was drcoop.com, um, based in Texas, <laughs> um, defunct. Um, but I worked with, uh, like I did the MS, uh, Microsoft and NBC merger. If you remember, like, why do you need MSNBC? Um, that introduced me to the television industry and the, um, chairman of MSNBC was on the board of this startup called TiVo. And he introduced me to Mike Ramsey and, um, Jim Barton, and they asked me to kind of manage, you know, I, they, after 15 years of being an agency person, um, they convinced me to come to the evil, dark corporate side. And um, I was hired to build a brand for TiVo and manage the consumer launch. And um, that was the first time I realized, um, you know, with due respect to one firefly, building the brand, doing all the Marcom, the creative assets is only one facet of the business. It's really, how can marketing really be a revenue generate, like operationally, how do you integrate into systems and sales and product and engineering? And, and then I fell in love with that and kind of started my corporate side of my career. TiVo was a, a Silicon Valley startup. Mm-hmm. We how were... The expectations, like what were you asked to do? Go make oh. this thing a global brand? Is I mean, was that here's this brand, here's this idea, and here's a bunch of money that we're gonna burn to try to make this thing. Like, how were you even managed or held accountable? What were the goals so, you were trying to achieve? Well, interestingly, um, I talked about the gods on it's working in my favor. Here's a story of the gods not working in my favor. So I joined the company. Um Silicon Valley, you know, there was tons of um, venture capital thrown into TiVo. I think they raised about $250 million. They had strategic investors like AOL and um, Sony and Panasonic and Thompson, all were big investors in bringing that company to life. Um, it, it was the 90s. There was a lot of hubris in Silicon Valley. And when I was getting recruited, I was told I had a $70 million marketing budget. And we were going to do national TV. We were going to have, this, these were the day of retail, right? So you had um, retail teams going in and teaching all the Best Buy guys, the Fry's guys, Circuit City. Most of those companies don't even exist. I was going to say, I'm from Virginia, so I know Circuit City. That was born um, in Tweeter, Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. From Boston. You know, we had demo days. We had like the, the, the plans were off the charts crazy. Um, I literally joined the company uh, like in February, like we kind of signed the deal at CES, start in February, the market crashes in March. And so that $70 million budget ratcheted back to $14 million. We're supposed to launch in, in October. And the bulk of that budget was really to subsidize the cost of the product. So when we launched TiVo, that like the entry level product price point was like $800, right? Like, and for a consumer that, product, for a consumer product that they never even knew they needed. And, um, and then you had to pay this monthly fee that doesn't even cover the cost of the product. I mean, like disk drives back then were like this big and really expensive. And, you know, they weren't a micro, they weren't a chip at that point in time. Yeah. So, um, most of like the outbound marketing budget was minuscule. So goodbye TV advertising, goodbye demo days, you know, like how are you going to um, build this brand? And by the way, but the, the, the sales goals, um, the unit They didn't change. Goals, they didn't change. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. Um, but this is where um, like one of my like most valuable professional um, lessons came from was... Um, Yes, like creative makes a difference. Brand position makes a difference. But 
your pro- if you have a crap product experience, it doesn't matter. And TiVo was like an exceptional, beautiful, amazing, consumers told us life-changing consumer product experience. And so we just shine the spotlight on that. And we, instead of outlying cash, I gave away, we gave away hundreds of units to people who could, who had a platform to talk about the TiVo experience. So we started with um, broadcast, with radio, we did with sports radio DJs, talk radio, Howard Stern was a big, you know, evangelist. If you think of every local market, um, local radios, guys, we gave them TiVos, they record their favorite games, and then they would just wax on forever on air about. So you, you were practicing influencer marketing before influencer marketing was a thing. And, and quite honestly, we probably ruined it for product seeding too, because we just, we didn't have to pay to give away product. Now you have to. Um, we showed up at the Emmys. We showed up at the Sundance um, Film Festival. We gave units to celebrities, to TV writers, and then suddenly TiVo's getting written into Sex in the City and, you know, movies are including TiVo. Um, TiVo, the product experience of the, I don't know if you guys had TiVo, it had this great bloop bloop sound that was part of the brand. Um, that just helped us build a lot of visibility. And then because we were so dramatically changing consumer behavior and quite frankly, threatening this multi-billion dollar industry called TV advertising, um, we had tremendous PR appeals. So um, I remember being Am I allowed to curse it? No. Crapping. Yeah, in my I, I I do it regularly. No, yeah, sorry. go for it. Crapping in my pants when <laughs> um, I take a call from Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes and he wants to do a show on how we're destroying TV advertising. I've got a question getting posted about that. I didn't understand it, but now I'm hearing you talk about it. And I understand that this is, this is clearly a, a thing. Ted is saying, I'm guessing there was a lot of panic about ad revenue from TV networks. What kind of resistance did you get from them as you were building TiVo? Thanks, Ted, for that. So um, before I joined the company, um, the TiVo developed some TV spots that they were going to run, and I killed them. Uh, they did run a little bit, but it was so Silicon Valley-centric and not customer-centric, um, which is an important lesson for integrators as well. Um, the, the TV spot was like the Grim Reaper walking in the door of a TV executive and throwing the TV executive out the window. And the Valley, you know, the investors and the leadership team were like, oh, this is great TV spots. And I was saying, like, what does this have to do with the consumer? And you're like just throwing kerosene on a potential fire. Like, this is a horrible creative strategy. And um, instead, you know, when you talk to consumers, they didn't care about the fact that they were, we were changing a business model. A Silicon Valley startup cares, but a consumer doesn't. Um, and instead, that the fact that you know we shifted our brand position of like of TiVo, TV your way, right? For the first time, you're in control. You can watch what you want whenever you want to. That was like it seems every day now, like especially with so much content we have available. Um, in the 90s, we didn't have this, nearly this much content. There was no web content. Um, and so the ability to, you know, um, record every Sesame Street um, on your TiVo. And when you're making dinner, put your five-year-old in front of Sesame Street and not feel really terrible about him sitting on the couch watching TV so that you have a few minutes to prepare dinner made a big difference in consumers' lives. Um, but we made a point of being at a lot of TV industry conferences. We worked in partnership. We we <clears throat> could we had viewership data that we could share with advertisers and the networks. And and so we, as Mike Ramsey, the CEO, said, like we knew there was a line in the sand. We didn't know quite where it was, but you knew if you crossed it. Were you uh, allowing the consumer to totally skip the commercial? Oh yeah. But yeah, of course, because it was recorded, you just fast forward through it all. But another startup called Replay TV, which doesn't exist, which didn't survive long, had a had on its remote um, remote a commercial skip button. We felt that that was crossing the line, um, whereas um, Replay didn't. And uh, you know they they 
got a lot more negative attention from the networks and the industry. They kind of shielded you almost. They went out Mm -hmm. and took the heat and you weren't the evil people with the skip button. But we did, you know, and again, from the consumer experience, like we did a, um, which was, uh, well, an Oprah Winfrey giveaway was probably the biggest sales event we ever did in the history of the company. But second to that was um, uh, we record, we, released the day after the Super Bowl and we then became it became an annual practice of like what was the most rewatched moment of um oh. the Super Bowl that year. And it happened to be a Britney Spears Pepsi spot. And so the fact that we could communicate, uh TiVo consumers actually watched the commercial. And if it's a great commercial, they're going to watch it again and again. So kind wow. of our position was make great commercials and consumers are going to watch it. If you make crap, they're going to skip skip over it. They're going to skip over it. No, that's amazing to hear how you pivoted there. What? Uh, what? Where did you go from TiVo? Uh, I left TiVo after about five years, and that was a lifestyle choice. Of I, 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 I stepped back. You know, the lean in, lean out thing. Um, my kid, my kids were actually it was my son. My oldest was moving into high school. My husband traveled a lot for business, and I felt I needed to be home to micromanage homework and make sure that the kid could go on to college or do something. Good news is he's a, a grown man and a lawyer now and, uh, you know, very responsible. He's, he's doing pretty good for himself now. Yeah. yeah. So it was a good bet, <laughs> but um, not so much back then. And, uh, um, and I kind of just did some freelance consulting work. And um, one of my clients, investors, um, was an investor in this company I never heard of called Control 4. And Mm -hmm. so I got a call from this venture capitalist and said, hey, Susan, will you meet with the CEO? He's going to be in San Francisco for some conference. And uh, I think I was left with the the impression I was going to talk to Will West, who is the founder of Control 4, about the, the complexities and the good, you know, the good and the bad of working with Best Buy. And how can you balance Best Buy channel conflict with dealers? So I thought I was just meeting him for, you know, coffee and breakfast. And he ended up talking to me about energy, like, and the um, Obama stimulus plan. And um, I had no I had no idea, but basically he raised $20 million for Control 4 to spin out a separate division that was based in California. And he wanted to, um, and I ended up... Um, taking that hook completely um, because I really liked the idea of, you know, my midlife crisis of moving from entertainment, doing something green and sustainable. And Will had a great idea of, you know, building a device that would communicate to all these smart meters that were going to be rolling out with the um, Obama stimulus plan, kind of feels very similar today. Um, But there were billions of dollars that utilities were upgrading their electric infrastructure and he wanted to have a, a, a role in that of as utilities were sending messages down to consumers' homes through Control 4 and Zigbee, we could communicate to the meter and then automate and control energy usage of devices in the home. Um, so I loved that idea. Um, I joined, I was the first employee of Control 4 Energy. And um, in talking to utilities, I think it took me about six months to realize the business plan that was sold to the board at Control 4 was wildly flawed. Um, you know, it would take five years to live through a pilot, yet alone realize, you know, millions of Control 4 units going into homes, being the Trojan horse, um, offering opportunity to all of our Control 4 dealers to upsell, you know, from an energy management solution to audio and video and lighting and everything else. Um, and I think the board got a little impatient and, um, you know, asked to make some dramatic changes. I was asked to kind of move away from energy and think about the core business. And so I think it was like 2010. I joined the company in 2008. In 2010, I moved over to kind of run um, marketing, global marketing for Control 4. And that's kind of when I started my foray into the CI channel. When did Martin join? 
He joined probably two years after that. So I think he joined in 12 or 11 or something like that. But, um, and I'm not sharing anything. Should I continue? Yeah, this is great. I, 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 I'm loving it. I hope the audience, no, I don't see many people uh, leaving. So I, I think they're loving the story. This okay. is awesome. So, um, oh, wow. So I, when I started at the company, um, I was, you know, I felt that um, our, the way we presented ourselves to dealers and to consumers was just off mark, off the mark. Um, and I spent a lot of time working on um, just just the visual design and way and the way we told the story of autom home automation. That's another story. Um, but um, it was really my first time as an executive, <clears throat> and uh, Martin really pushed this as well. Really going into the field and and in and really understanding the customer, and in our case, the customer was the integrator. And um, uh, you know, we were talking earlier, uh, Ron, that I, I was kind of snotty about this channel. You know, my first um, I, my first CDA show, I'm like, this is so rinky dink. It's tiny. Like, where is you know, like the big sexy uh, visual presence that you you know we were we were at CES, right? And and at yeah, people from CEDIA aren't attending the Emmys necessarily, yeah, or yeah. the no, all so the like, other events. Where's that the you were sexy sizzle here? And you know, like, look how small these booths are, and like, where's the traffic? And there aren't crowds, and I don't, you know, I'm not waiting in line at the airport for an hour to get a cab. Um, just jokingly, but um, I guess that, you know, I'll jump to forward is, you know, I fell in love with this channel and um, who needs like big retailers when you're interacting at a very humanistic level with dealers who are building businesses, might be running huge businesses, but like the responsibility of them to be successful, not just for themselves and their families, but for all their employees um, traveling literally around the world and appreciating appreciating the enormity of that business responsibility um, really motivated me and motivated our company to um, kind of break the mold and do as much as we could to help integrators become successful. So um, I'm very, like, I love this channel. We can talk about that later, but. Um, well, I, I just, I was just going to agree. I mean, I joined the channel uh, 20 years ago, I didn't have any of those other experiences you're describing. This is the only customer business type that I've professionally worked with. But I, I agree. I mean, why have I stayed for 20 years and why do I continue to invest time, money, and energy? It's because I just love helping the small business owner that are out there playing with amazing technology. We look forward. The future of technology and home and business is going to do nothing but increase. And you have, you know, this is this is the, I want to say the American way, it's, it's global, but the small business is really such an important player in society and the number of people they employ and the opportunities they provide for themselves and their, their families. I just, you know, I, I equally love helping them. And yeah, that and sounds like where you're coming from. Yeah. And as a corporate brand, you know, as a corporate entity in the channel, um, it's very, you know, like I'll, I'll go back to my TiVo days, um, you know, walking into a Best Buy meeting or a Circuit City meeting, you're sitting in a room with like 10 executive VPs, right? They all have enormous national responsibility. They have lots of budget. And so like what you needed to do to make them, I mean, yes, we did programs and we had tools, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it was kind of like it. I'm appreciative just from a professional development point of view, the sandbox for creativity and building tools and ideating and architecting programs for our channel is so much more inspiring because they, you know, our channel doesn't have those resources that the big national guys do. And so for the big brands um, serving the channel, um, there's a lot of, room for creativity and, you know, beyond just developing great product, my job was, you know, and I, I ended up running training and support for Control 4-2, you know, like how do we make sure that the, ex the dealer experience was exceptional in those areas as well as just the product? To, to bring it forward, um, 
uh, I'll say uh, forward to where you launched the the C4 uh, showroom initiative. And that was uh, just a, a not too far in advance of ultimately the Snap AV merger. Um, I know that you feel very strongly about experience and experiential selling, experiential marketing. Can you kind of give us like what, what your beliefs are there and, and, and maybe how that was realized in, in that program you launched? Sure. Um, you know, believe me, I love the stuff that Control 4 built. I love buying stuff that this channel sells, but I don't buy products. I, I like I buy what those products can do for me. And, um, I, you know, part of this was tie, tied back to um, my experience at Control 4, I mean, excuse me, at TiVo, is really understanding, like, it, just how much equity delivering experiences for a consumer, as opposed to selling a DBR, is very different than explaining, like, you're in charge of watching, you know, you have access to your favorite shows whenever you want them. So it's just such, such a different higher level value prop that consumers are willing to like place a bet and hold your hand and jump off the cliff with you. Right. And I think that our, like so many of our integrators in the channel are in the channel because they love gear, right? They love technology. They geek out on the speeds and feeds and, you know, at control four, when we would launch products, you know, so much of what we would do would really dive into that to win over the integrator. Why, you know, why the, the EC controller line over a Crestron, you know, automation platform. But at the end of the day, in terms of instructing the dealer to sell that, like that's not going to resonate with the consumer. Um, we weren't all, at Control 4, when, we weren't ready to, to really embrace the consumer um, until we got the experience right. And like my journey at Control 4 was, uh, you know, I, as an executive now running marketing, I, got a full automation system in my home, um, telling my husband and my family this is going to change our lives. And it did, but in a negative way in the, you know, if for those who are control floor dealers will recall, we had a lot of software issues and um, glitchy experiences in the home. One, an example of this one night, we're asleep, everyone's in bed. Um, one in the morning, literally every light goes on in our home. It was like control for OS2 was wildly buggy. And my husband like looks at me and says, like, get this shit out of our house. And the next day I, you know, an executive, I can call him like, get on this and fix this. But all I could think about was how many thousands of phone calls were generated that very same night that went to our dealers. And what a nightmare for the dealers who had like pitched them on this amazing experience of control for, and we were wildly under delivering it. Um, and, and, you know, as an executive, the, the, the pain of going through, like, I felt like we were in an abyss in terms of brand reputation, experiential reputation. I can't believe our dealers even stayed with us during those, those dark years. And it probably took about two years to get out of the abyss. Martin was really good about focusing the company on experience. We stopped chasing other activities and opportunities and really locked down on the core business. And, and it wasn't until we really locked down on that that I felt that we could really start to push that experience out to the consumer. And so we started with, you know, video production, not just talk, like really, we really upped our game in the marketing side of pulling together the tools to articulate that experience to consumers. But then we would send consumers with, you know, they'd be inspired and they would go to a dealer and the dealer would sell them boxes. And there was a disconnect there. And um, and so when we felt that the time was right and ready and, and traveling the world, there were some dealers that were amazing at selling experience. They had showrooms that were like Disneyland of home automation. And I was kind of like, I want me some of that at a corporate level, right? Like, how can we programmatize this and, and excite and, and inspire other integrators to embrace these practices that we've seen in China and Australia and Mexico and, well, certain areas throughout the, in North America as well? So, like, so that when you walked into a room, you were just like, I want this, right? Like, I don't, you know, I, I just built this house and 
you know, I'd go into a Sub-Zero Wolf um, showroom and I never wanted to leave, right? So how can we do that with automation? And that was kind of the genesis of we were ready to sell an experience. How could we inspire integrators to present that experience and, and, and not just talk about technology? Let me show you a door station, but let me show you what this means in terms of security for your home. And even when you're not home, you know who's at the door well before ring came around. Um, what would was, dealers do, Susan, if they couldn't, quote, afford to do a full build out in their own showroom? Or maybe that they, I'm not going to say they couldn't afford it. Maybe they just, they weren't able or willing to budget for it. It's expensive. Did you, did you advise other approaches? Yeah. So, um, and we've actually played matchmaker for a lot of integrators as well, but I always counsel integrators to look for partnerships in your local market. Um, you could, you know, comp uh, an install in a luxury auto dealership, work with an interior designer or architect who has a, a beautiful showroom that's inviting and, you know, has that interior design aesthetic and, and outfit it with like killer automation and have a little placard and, and it, you know, work a deal where you can bring your clients to that show that benefits the partner. Um, I, 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 we had dealers that I just wildly respect in the UK who kind of showed me the way, um, working in design centers. Um, we, at Control 4, we helped an, an integrator. We would comp, I would go to my, my vendors and say, hey, give me a great deal on, on gear. I'm not buying it to sell it. I'm using it to sell more. Um, so go to your vendors and say, give me a great deal and let me put Sonos in and let me put Control 4 in or Savant in and Lutron in and, you know, um, use this, this area that's bringing in a lot of consumer traffic that's the like-minded consumer. And that's another way that you can deliver on that experiential selling. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I'm going to take it high level now, just marketing in general. You traveled the world and met with all of, not all, but many, many, many of your C4 dealers, but I'll just say integrators at large. What do you believe is the area around, I'll say, marketing or branding that you would want them to understand from your, your experience about the influence or power of, of good branding or good marketing? Um, what I would want the integrators to take away? Yeah. What What are the things that maybe some of them, maybe most of them are not aware of? Like, you know, I can tell you in my seat, I'm constantly explaining and educating. And um, I'm saying, you know, if this is done, if you build your brand, it has these positive impacts. What's your, you're coming at this from a different direction. What's your perspective there? Well, I always tell integrator, well, any, any business, right? Like, could be any what's business. Your, what's your secret sauce? Why are you in this business? Like, why are you different than someone else? What is that position statement that says, I'm going to put my trust in you versus the guy down the street? Maybe it's, uh, you know, and, and, I, and it's, that's not necessarily a creative tagline. It's really knowing what is your like core being and why you're so valuable to your customer. And I think that, that because by doing that, then as you build your brand and you stay true to that position, your brand's authentic. It's defensible. It's not a stretch. And it can also serve as kind of your vision for way to, ways to extend that brand position. How do I want my logo to look? How do I want my website to look? Do I want my office to be this way or that way? What type of people do I want to hire? But there's so many different facets of how your brand is represented. Now, stepping away from the channel, um, one of my favorite brands, um, I think, does a great job of demonstrating its brand position across many touch points is the brand Restoration Hardware. Hmm. Again, going back to my home in Tahoe, um, new home, uh, need to buy some furniture, um, during the pandemic, very challenging to uh, get things delivered on time. Um, Restoration Hardware, beautiful website. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, beautiful description of products, lots of product detail. Um, online people and in-store people to help me make sure my couch that I bought isn't too big, isn't too small. Um, wonderful experience from the website to looking at the product, getting help 
Um, I place the order, the phone, you know, I get a text when delivery is ready. They tell me exactly, you know, at an hour before delivery, the guy says, I'm coming an hour from now. I just want to make sure that's still okay. This truck that's beautifully branded simply with restoration hardware pulls up to the front of my house. Two men come out with like matching black, you know, black shorts, black socks, black shoes, black shirt with the logo on it. They knock on my door with a mask on with RH on it. Um, they take their shoes off and put little booties with RH on it. Um, the the experience like across the board was just seamless and consistent. And every touch point I had with that company from when I first started shopping to when they left my home was oh, exquisite, right? Same with the integration, right? Like, how are you, what is that brand position? Um, you might get a phone call because a friend refer, you know, referred a friend to you. But what's your, what's your storefront look like online? Do I go to a website and am I greeted with something that I want in my home? Or am I greeted with, and believe me, lots of control floor dealers were like this. The websites look like they were selling to plumbers, you know, not to homeowners. Like, how are you representing your company, your offering, your brand position online? Because no matter, even if I love you, I'm going to research you, right? So if you're going to open a business in the channel, make sure that you're opening a beautiful website to supplement that business. That's a lot cheaper than buying real estate, right? And then if you do decide to have a showroom, make sure it is has the same brand aesthetic that you want to appeal um, and represent to your prospective consumer. So that continuity and consistency of that, who you are, why you matter is really important. Talk, what are your feelings around what makes a beautiful website? I'm sure lots of folks listening or watching are going, wow, what does is, what is Susan have in mind? Uh, whatever Ron and his team create. Um, well, all right. There's 20 bucks in the mail for you for that. But I didn't expect you to say that. that. But like, you send that to Joe Whitaker too, please? Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah I'll, I'll send Joe 20 bucks too. Um, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I want to be greeted with who you are and why you matter to me. Right. So some sort of hero image, whether that's video, you know, video is amazing. And I think um, video communicates so much and is so much more engaging, more expensive to produce. But, you know, telling your story um, is important, but but not in a chest beating way, in a way that is really putting that customer, your client front and center. Um, I think it's really important to communicate what services you provide, whether that, you know, and whether what brands you represent um, is important because I'm shopping around. I need information, right? Um, I think reviews on your website that speak client experience that speaks to how amazing you are is a really great reinforcement of your brand. Um, what am I missing? No, um, I, I, well, I'm, I'm going to, Name capture, you're a dodo if you're not taking advantage of um, traffic on your site and saying, connect with me, let me get your name and number. Um, at Control 4, we we created this the dumbest, simplest form, and it was our greatest um, lead generation tool, which is, tell, you know, like, what are you thinking about? What do you want to automate? What do, you, what do you want? Like, tell me the size of your home. Tell me the, it was such a great tool. It seems to be a really consumer-facing tool, but th those people who, you know, um, gave us that information were much further down the sales cycle than someone who downloaded a free magazine, which is another great lead gen tool. So think I, about that too. I, I want to talk about a very specific strategy that I think I know that you practiced when you were uh, uh, running the marketing at C4. I do not know if they are still doing it or not. Um, you did Google advertising and you did Google advertising with the goal of generating leads that you could give your dealers. Mm -hmm. And um, why did you do that? And did it work? And is that something that integrators or it could be vendors or whoever you are listening out there, when is that appropriate? In, at least in your opinion. Um, I'm a big believer in, in Google AdWords, and I, I also believe social media advertising is wildly efficient. And uh, especially with Instagram and Facebook, it, it, 
it allows you to use imagery to connect with the consumer in a different way. So that's my, so for online advertising, I think those three are really um, efficient lead generation tools. Um, and I, I, I actually, if I wish that, it, not that I want to be an integrator, but if I were an integrator, I would spend all day long for that. And I would own um, and nurture those leads and follow up on those leads like a mad dog because I spent the money for them. The problem for Control 4 was we generated the leads and all of our dealers would say, yeah, I want leads. But we would pass the leads on to the dealer, but the dealer didn't follow up on the lead or thought he followed up on the lead or pass the lead on to someone else who thought they followed up on the lead. And then we found out later that more often than not, the lead didn't get a phone call. Um, and I think that's kind of a skin in the game type of thing, right? Like if it's your money, you, you'll be damn sure to make sure someone picks up the phone and follows up. Um, and we had methodologies. We put teams in place to qualify those leads. Our certified showroom program helped us kind of say, all right, you get the cream of the crop leads. And, um, and, and we had a more intimate relationship with those dealers so that we knew that they were following up. We created a dashboard so that it was easy for dealers to track where they were in the leads and that our lead gen team knew if something was followed up. And if it wasn't, we ended up making the decision of like, we're going to give a lead to four dealers in a local market and may the best man win. So if, if a dealer doesn't have skin in the game, not meaning not paying for it, he's very motivated to beat out a competitor. And so um, that helped solve the problem. And, um, you know, for control four, uh, I used to track, you know, I, 10, $10 million of incremental revenue to the control for bottom line was tied to the leads that we generated and passed on to dealers, which I feel really good about. Yeah, no, that's, that's impressive. The other, what, what, sorry, Ron, one other fun fact in a commercial for experience centers and, you know, yes, I'm biased towards control for experience centers, but um, on average, we saw um, dealers who invested in these showrooms we saw an average 20 to 40% business lift from having that opportunity to walk a consumer through the experience. And I think that's wildly powerful. Um, and I'm not underestimating the cost, both in manpower and attention and capital to do that, but um, I think there's real payoff there. Run that through the lens of COVID for me, though. So I'm going to just, I'm not going to challenge anything you just said. I agree well, with everything, I mean, I mean, but now. I wasn't there for COVID. But, I, I know. But, so but now we have COVID. Talking, so what do we in do? In my conversations with, and I stay in touch with a lot of dealers and in conversations with those who have showrooms, they do virtual demos, right? Like so you set up a Zoom, you have someone on camera and you're literally walking. It's the same thing. You're walking them through a demo and you're walking, you know, you don't have the person physically there, but you're doing it virtually. And a lot of dealers made the switch quickly during COVID and walked down of like, hey, schedule a virtual tour. And yeah. hey, no one's going to argue the fact that consumers locked in their homes spent a lot more money on technology during the pandemic than they didn't. And this was a vehicle to not just upgrade your network or get a new TV. But if you're doing this, let me show you this cool new thing. And it was really valuable. So that experiential wasn't live, it was virtual, still played a big role. Oh, that, that makes sense. What role do you think after sale service has in the brand that is the integrator? And do you what what is your opinion on how the industry currently thinks about that? Well, I'm going to answer that question um, with my control four hat on first. Um, we would do um, customer satisfaction surveys a lot. And um, it was very frustrating in many instances. If a dealer didn't do right by the customer, yeah, they didn't like the dealer, but it reflected terribly on control four, right? Like this isn't working, it's control four's fault. It might have nothing to do with control four. We, yeah. you know, we stood up a customer advocacy group just to supplement um, what dealers were doing. If there was a place where consumers were really having a hard time, they could come to us and we would solve the problem if a dealer didn't. Um, so I would be very defensive and pissy about integrators not abandoning a, a client. Now, we all know there are some crazy nut job clients out there that are demanding and awful. 
And at some point in time, you just have to cut your losses, totally get that. But so much of your brand reputation is not just um, how did you sell, how did you install, but how did you take care of that customer after the install, right? And um, and so I think it's really important part of brand reputation. Um, full disclosure, um, I advise uh, Joey Kolchinsky's company, um, One Vision now. And I, I kind of learned to um, appreciate for the integrator that that level of service doesn't have to come for free. And, um, and that we as an industry need to teach consumers just as we need to teach them about like the beautiful, amazing experiences all this technology can provide and afford um, a family. Um, it's like to, to keep all of that up and running and have access to um, help me now type of help, um, consumers need to be willing to pay for that. And I recognize that that's kind of weird, um, but, you know, my career is based on convincing consumers to change behavior. Um, it's not impossible. And I really b- kind of believe that there's real revenue opportunity for integrators to not just focus on the sell and the project, but really think about how can you optimize your service revenue um, and I'm excited for dealers to kind of realize that opportunity because I think it could really help accelerate their growth. Love that. And I have, I'm looking at my notes here of so many other things I want to talk to you about, but I'm mindful of time. So I want to I want to sneak in uh, one more topic here, and that is Cedia. I know you're doing a lot of work with Cedia. Um, and, I, I, and I also know that you're doing a lot of volunteer work to help integrators around the world. So you you actually had shared that you you mm-hmm. offer help and guidance and you don't charge for that time. If, if you maybe, I, so I guess I've snuck in too. So if you could talk about Cedia, what are you doing there? And and then how how are you helping those that, that might need help? Well, I, I think my favorite project I worked on with Cedia was, um, and for those who are participating, the Cedia Strong Campaign, um, working with the leadership team to pull together really quickly a response for COVID and um, uh, you know, the level of engagement and, and how Cedia, um, you know, uh, provided all of its uh, certification and um, online curriculum for free during that period when there was a lot of uncertainty in the channel, made me really proud of the trade association and the industry really loved the peer-to-peer knowledge sharing within the industry that took that always takes place, but kind of even more so during the pandemic. Um, and I've been working with them on some partnerships and um, uh, product type, kind of like developing some new programs. Uh, Giles Sutton launched the uh, Propel program, which is really about bringing new brands into the channel and introducing new brands to integrators. Um, one of one company I worked with on the side and introduced to Cedia is a company called Bright. Um, and I mentioned, you know, I mentioned to you um, before we went live that I'm really into kind of wellness and it's my mountain life, fitness things, and and well tech. And you know, so there's some really interesting emerging new products and brands coming into the space. And um, Bright is like a, res- a restorative sleep product. That I think yeah. could like is perfect for a showroom, um, perfect integration with Lutron or Control Four or Savant. It can be hard for those brands to break in. Yeah, and and so it's giving brands an opportunity to meet the channel. Um, it's it's an opportunity for integrators to kind of learn and discover about new technology. Um, it, it's emerging. Uh, it's a you know just the program's just kicking off. Um, Ian Bryant, who I think is. I have wild respect for him at Cedia is um, working with the technology group to identify new partners. I um, mean, so I just think it's, it's a, um, a way for Cedia members to um, kind of think about how do they expand their opportunity? Um, how, how do they expand their product offering? Got it. And, and then on the volunteer side, like I, I, I think I spoke disparagingly, as an ignorant person of Cedia when I first moved into my role at Control 4. But I love this channel. I had like a, a, a wild ride, an amazing career at Control 4. Um, so many dealers across the world. 
have given me time and insight. My team hated when I would visit because when I would come back, I'd have like a million new ideas, which meant more work for them. Um, but I, I, I want, you know, um, I, I, I offered up, um, I've done a lot of seminars at Cedia online where if, if a dealer needs help with anything marketing, um, you know, give me your perspective, like, how can you start this positioning work? Um, what should I do for advertising? Do I do this logo or that? Or how can I connect with influencers in my market? Um, you know, I, I just use LinkedIn, set up a session and I'll, you know, I'll riff with you. Um, I'll probably direct you to resources that you will have to pay for one firefly, like run, not blowing smoke up your butt, but I think you do beautiful work. Um, I really believe in the import of a web presence for integrators. Um, I can get them thinking about that, but I'm not going to do the work. Um, so I, I, and I've, you know, enjoyed calls with integrators in India and the UK and Mexico and um, Europe and, uh, and different parts of the US. And I kind of feel like it's just a way, a small token of appreciation for, uh, you know, a beautiful 10, 10 year ride at Control 4. What's work? What's life look like for you these days, Susan? How are you? Are you still in that grind of the C four days, or are things a little bit different? What what what's going on? To quote Handsmaids from um, Hulu, "Praise be no." Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I loved my immersive life and role at Control Four, but um, I never realized in my career that this phase existed, which is, um, I you know I always thought like you run, 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 go, 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 go. That was life at control my whole career. Um, and then I thought there was no go. Um, but the truth is there's this thing called slow go. And that is perfection. Um, I work um, part-time. I work a little bit every day. I, I sit on a few boards. Um, I, I focus on areas of technology. I really care about wellness, um, the you know, CDS space. and um, and energy, because I, I really loved that green text uh, stint I did at Control 4. So I, I, I work, I kind of primarily focus in those areas. Um, I have a few consulting gigs where I, um, I kind of serve as a virtual CMO or help, you know, um, companies think about strategic issues or product development, program development. Um, my, sweet, strong, my strong suits in messaging and positioning, and I, I love that work. Um, and I love the fact that I only have to worry about myself. I know what I'm capable. I never oversell because I know what I can do. Um, whereas I'm not dependent on other groups within my company or teams or people or, you know, what they're getting pulled off of my work to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and I spend the rest of my time enjoying the mountains, um, skiing, hiking, mountain bike riding, um, and a lot of time spoiling um, my grandchildren and cooking and um, spending time, you know, enjoying this this phase of my life. I, I got a comment here uh, from Mark, and I feel bad. Mark says Susan rocks, and he says, "Where are the grandkid photos? You, you're <laughs> you're keeping us hanging." You're Mark. You're absolutely right. I did not prep and grab the grandkid photos to insert in the show. You can I, friend my me apologies. on Instagram, like uh, you know, uh, request. It. Request on Instagram and Facebook, and um, you'll get more than enough. <laughs> you get, yeah, I follow her. There'll be lots of grandkids, Mark. So if you want to, you want to see the beautiful family, definitely go there. Susan, your, yeah. No, go, go ahead. No, 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 no. Um, to close out, uh, those listening or watching, what's the best way for them to reach? I know you mentioned LinkedIn. Is that going to be the preferred yeah, I think method? If we're not connected on LinkedIn, just mention this podcast or Ron or One Firefly and I will be sure to connect with you. And and then send me a message if you want to talk or set up some time. I'm happy to do that. Awesome. And I am uh, I've prepared my team with your LinkedIn uh URL and so they should be dropping it down into the ch the chat notes uh here eminently uh on I Facebook. See. And of course, we'll be dropping that on to the dedicated page for Susan on uh, the One Firefly website for the show, for the interview. 
Uh, Susan, it was it was a pleasure. Uh, number one, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over these years and Likewise. to and to learn about you and and all of your wisdom. And and I'm looking forward to many more years of that. Um, but uh, thank you for thank coming you. on the show. Thank you. Um, really enjoyed the time. It was it was great. And then waxing on about Control Four and even more so this industry. There's so many incredible people and businesses here, um, you know, thriving in Cedia and we just all benefit um, if we work together and help each other. Amen. Definitely could not have said it better myself. Thanks so much, Susan. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Automation Unplugged. For a full transcript of this show and all previous shows, head over to our website at onefirefly.com forward slash AU. There you'll find links to all transcripts, show notes, Facebook live recordings, and resources mentioned during the show. If you enjoyed this episode and like to hear more, follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please follow us on social media. We are at One Firefly LLC on all platforms. Don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Automation Unplugged as we dive deeper into technology trends and the fascinating people that make up the custom integration industry. Bye for now.